Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hey, do we, do we even know what episode this is? <laughs> I, I had it in my head and then you said that and now I'm worried. Okay, I'm just logging into Symbolcast and checking. This He does this to me. I was happy and knew I was what episode it was and was fine. It's episode 117. Okay. Who wants Alex? Do you want to do yeah. start? Okay. Um, okay. Oh. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the year 2023. <laughs> it is, in fact, the return of Bilge Pumps. Uh, episode 117, I think. Um, well, it's the second return of Bilge Pumps because we've been yes, well, again. it's my return. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's one of the things we ha- we do now have members who are gadding around the world vibrantly. Yeah, you know, we, 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 we started out as a as a COVID lockdown exercise, so we could we couldn't escape our mm. um, uh, weekly roster, but now the rest of the world keeps intervening. So we're going to buy a weekly format, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, in between um, all the other things we have to dodge. Mm-hmm. Well, it also gives everybody else uh, in the world a chance to actually, um, you know, do something interesting <laughs> for us to talk about. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. We're not going to be talking about the um, modular um, Danish systems anymore. No, not for the not. minute. Anyway. Um, not. But they're so pretty, and they're doing new research into new ones. <laughs> Save it, or, or get an expert on to, to to talk to. Yeah, I I am actually working on that. I have sent an email to the Danish chief of staff, so we'll see if that oh. gets a response. Okay, because I, I, I got one of the contacts we made at the last year's naval conference that we went to um, has contacts in that direction, and I asked them shamelessly. And they said, yeah, I'll give you the email. Not sure if you'll reply, but I'll give you the email. Well, would it be fun? It's worth a try. That's what contacts are all about. So who wants to introduce today's topics? Because we've got some good ones. Well, it's basically everybody's everybody's raiding the armories. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, gonna, it's the kind of scenario where sort of people are going... Uh, and I don't know about you, but I get lots of comments on my videos currently going, ah, uh, yes, but, you know, do you need these in modern warfare? And I'm going, well, A, this is a history video, and B, you probably do still need their equivalent, because the one truism from warfare seems to be, as much as new stuff likes to enter the field, you still need something to usually deliver the old capabilities. Uh, look, I mean, yeah, that has been something that's been bouncing around in Australia a lot since this announcement was made. Um, admittedly, I have to say that you know quite a few of the loudest uh, voices predicting the demise of the submarine were not voices that predicted the rise of the iPhone and um, social media. So um, I'm afraid that sort of does strip their credibility when it comes to looking into the crystal ball quite considerably. Um, however, you know, um, it's the risk that everybody takes, isn't it? It's whether you're spending 30 years and a trillion dollars building a IOC, initially operational capability, F-35, <laughs> or you're spending 30 years 
or 40 years and um, $360 million, a billion dollars Australian to get yourself um, a homegrown nuclear submarine. Well, you know, that's just the world we live in. It's We, 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 we no longer live in a world where, you know, the Ford manufacturing company can say, hmm, we're building so, so many components here for the B-17. Why don't we just slap on a couple more sheds out the back and turn ourselves into a um, uh, production, production facility for B-17s and churn out a B-17 every every hour? It, that, that's not going to ever happen again because of the nature and complexity of stuff. Um, this well, is... un until we get, until we expand all of our ammunition and we're back to um, bows and arrows and uh, slingshots. Even then, I can't imagine modern procurement could actually sustain delivering bows and arrows <laughs> and bows and arrows in a sensible single factory position. I'm fairly sure you'd have the arrows made in one space, while the shafts made in one factory, the heads made in another factory. Um, the, and don't uh, the fletchings will be made in a third factory, or actually maybe a third and a fourth factory, and then it'll all be assembled in a fifth and a sixth factory, and nowhere near where you actually needed to use them. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, again, this is something which comes up quite a lot. Um, I don't know, again, about the, the other, you know, Jamie and Drat on this one, but um, the amount of times people seem to not understand how complicated it is to build certain things. It's like, I was talking with someone the other day, and I was explaining to them that it, the war emergency destroyers mostly took roughly two years to build. And they're going, but they're war emergency destroyers. Surely they could have built them quickly, more quickly. And no. It takes roughly two years to build. Uh, there is, from laying down to commissioning is roughly two years. It's not a matter of really putting the holes in the water. The You know, putting together a, a boat-shaped collection of steel is can be done very quickly and easily if you yeah. if you, you know, increase the shifts and everything um it's it's the bottleneck items the engines the guns you know the things that turn it from a, a, an interesting floating object into an actual warship you you physically can can only build those at a certain rate and that's that's your technological bottleneck i mean even towards the end of world war ii when they'd moved away from the wartime emergency destroyers theoretically the battles about half a dozen of the battles were in the water and substantially structurally complete enough that they could have seen a few months of service out in the pacific but they didn't have things like their fire control systems yet mm -hmm. and so remember technically shows up like two yeah, days Barfla before the actually technically managed to make the pacific war i do mention that in my book yeah. she technically gets there but she's um, and everyone else it, everyone else is still waiting for their equipment it's like yeah. technically because i've lost a couple of pounds i'm slimming mm -hmm. i mean yeah look yeah it, you're exactly right the gun mounts got more and more complex as uh they needed to track faster and uh, angle their turrets higher and then they had to integrate the um, power systems of those mounts with the, you know, radar tracking and radar guidance. Um, and you know, you've got to remember that the fire control computers of this of that era were still analog. But again, you know, the demands of an analog uh, analog fire log fire control computer in um, 1945 was dramatically more complicated than the ones that are producing for the tribals in the late 1930s. Yeah. So you know. Um, 
that, that that's just a take that and then multiply it by however many years we've had in between add a, add a few hundred percent more and that's how complex things are now so yeah it's it's building the whole i'm sure we can find ways to make it hard <laughs> uh, i'm sure we do um but it's yeah that's as you say not the problem the problem is the wiring the, the problem is the um, the circuitry and the software and then on top of that is the you know the demand to integrate all this different proprietary um intellectual property between one um manufacturer and, and one um defense supplier and another and, and that's you know that's an enormous time sink but you know that's you know it's not only our problem um although yeah, admittedly the chinese say that they use um, ai now to streamline the design and construction of their warships and i guess that's one way to go from you know 30 warships in the year 2000 to 350 now so i would say uh it's kind of interesting coming out from well My, as I've mentioned before, my dad was heavily involved in the introduction of computer aided design to ship design. He did, wrote all this, uh, helped write all the original coding. He helped plan it all out. And um, one of the things he will often say is the first five versions of it that came up in the first 15 years caused more trouble long term than they did help. Because whilst they'd made things look simpler and quicker to design, they actually caused issues when it came back to fixing, repairing, or maintaining things. Because the things they'd taken out had been things which looked to everyone watching must be great, but to the experienced naval architects were going, um, that's that 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 is inefficient in terms of the design and construction, but it makes everything else more efficient later. And I'd be interested to see how these first generations of apparently AI-aided design have worked out will work out on that front. Now, the Chinese might just do a policy of just building more ships, which, interesting enough, I have, is kind of historically accurate to what they did with their navy, because um, I was talking about, in a video that came out on the 19th of March, uh, the navy's fought at the Battle of Yemen, and how the Chinese had all these ships, they had lots and lots of ships, but they weren't building them on seasoned wood. They were building them they were, while they were useful, they were great, and then they got rid of them and built new ones instead of, you know, what the city of the ship navies was, had far lower rates of production because the the Chinese were able to produce 600 in two yards and 300 in, in an, uh, two other yards every year. So they were able to produce massive, massive ships. They were less bothered about the idea of let's, re let's rebuild this ship like the British and the French were doing who could produce far less ships. And so we're concentrating on using season wood, everything to get the maximum hull life out of a single ship, individual ship, so they could actually build up numbers. Yep. So yeah. I do wonder if there's that sort of thing going on with the Chinese thing. That might be just the historian in me looking for historical analogies, though. I do admit <laughs> there is always that problem. When historians start doing strategic analysis, we do like to compare it to history. And sometimes yes. we can take it Not too far. No. Well, to be, to be honest, in in the modern world, unless they've got something really, really locked away that they're keeping very, very secret, which is, of course, entirely possible, um, I would probably 
hesitate at going with full AI design just yet, considering uh, the world of AI-generated art hasn't quite worked out that humans, in fact, do not have six fingers. Um, you know, the, the, yes. the, an, an AI-generated warship at this point would probably have one and a half hulls and no funnel, but 16 little outboard motors or something, because that, surely that's how you make a ship, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, I imagine it's some sort of you know computer-aided design system where mm. it, it automatically. Sorry, I'm not sure. Uh, sorry, Alexa. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, where, where we it, now it have proof that Jeff Bezos listens to Bill Trumps. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quite sure that um, you know it, it it does things like track automatically track and lay the the power systems and the um, the um, internet cabling and so forth through the through the the vessel more so than um you know specify exact locations of bulkheads and things but yeah, maybe it maybe it recommends gives you rec recommendations that the architect just gives a tick to the one that they think is the most appropriate so you know um i, I imagine that's how um computer aided design should be in a situation where it's uh, not com completely um sentient ai but you know getting back to you know, um, subs and what they're going to be in the future. And, you know, the point is, is that we don't know. And what's the alternative is is the, is, is what you, we always come back to. And, um, you know, the argument is that um, diesel electric subs that have to spend more time closer to the surface, no matter what, are going to be more vulnerable than um, you know, nuclear electric subs that, don't have to spend as much time near the surface. So I guess, you know, that makes perfect sense. And also, there are more people building large nuclear submarines than building large diesel submarines. In fact, the, the only people who were attempting to do that were the Australians and French, and yeah, there were issues. Yeah, well, no. I mean, they were, the, the French were trying to re retro um, engine, reverse engineer a nuclear submarine into a diesel electric. Um, we threw away our opportunity at you know, replacing columns 20 years ago when we should have started doing the design, but it was, you know, politically unpalatable uh, at that time because it was the opposite. It was a different political party than the ones that came up with the idea in the first place. So therefore... Let's be honest, you also need to not only do the design, you need to keep a low rate production of Collins or Collins-like oh, yeah. subs going to keep yeah. that yard and everything... And, and that's, why I said, skills. that's why I said 20 years ago, yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah we, we've thrown that opportunity, opportunity away. And uh, so we'll be starting from scratch to build nuclear subs or at least weld the components together that get shipped over here from the United Kingdom. Which, of course, this bilge pumps has not predicted at all was what could possibly happen. Months ago, when we were talking about this, um, all of us came up with a basic idea. Yeah, the nuclear reactors will have to be built in Britain. And then for a couple of months, we had many people going, no, 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 that's not going to be, it's not going to happen, that's not going to happen, that's not going to happen. August deal comes up. Where are nuclear reactors going to be built? Yeah. Oh, well, Britain! Yeah. I, mean, I have to be a cynic and say that, to me, it still feels like the can's getting kicked down the road again. Um, you know, oh, it totally is, I, I, because... I, there's just, yeah, we've gone from an empty thought bubble on a comic strip 18 months ago to a thought bubble on, on a comic strip that says TBA. So I guess you can call it a degree of progress, but 
we might or we might not be getting anywhere but, you know, uh, Virginia's, and we might be getting three, we might be getting five, we don't know. Um, then we're going to somehow miraculously get involved in designing a, a three-nation um, new submarine, SSN. Uh, no. How no, it's in the two nation submarine. It's only going to be Britain and America, uh, Britain and Australia at the moment. Not sure anyone's actually told America that bit yet, because the whole point of this um recent announcement was to give everybody exactly what they wanted to hear, I thought. Well, the, the <laughs> because they're gonna be writing was... they're gonna be providing you with the um weapon systems. Didn't you know that for the SSN August? They're gonna be providing their, it for um, for the the Americans are going to be providing weapon systems for the Americans uh, for the Australian submarines, but that integration is we have one advantage in that scenario going on. So you're not going to have VLS. Basically, what's going to happen is the two, the, the commander control modules are going to be slightly differently laid out to take the different fire control systems, uh, but pretty much everything else probably will be pretty much the same. Because when we consider the the fire control patented. They're going to give us the, their patented uh, vertical launch systems for submarines. And, Those uh, are... They have to be integrated into your submarines. In, in, they have to be integrated into your um, design. The thing is, that <laughs> does anyone check who those patented VLS systems are built by? <laughs> well, it depends anyone on where check the, the company are, and the name it? of the company? BAE America, because BAE Britain and BAE Australia aren't allowed to operate in America. Yes. But it is kind of it is BAE and <laughs> no, knowing, it's not. Uh, if you say the, that to an American, that you'll be in all sorts of trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yes, believe but me. The, the trouble is, I know quite a lot of the BAE teams, and let's put it this way: quite a lot of the engineering teams, doesn't matter whether they're America, Australia, or Britain, have quite a large number of Brits wandering around. And quite a lot, large number of Americans and quite a large number of Australians already. So, in a nicest way, there is part of me which sometimes wonders when they, they say these companies are operated are kept separate. Is I go, how thin is that particular paper wall? Because well, as, the people as, as, transfer think, between teams. I think it's thick enough to convince the chest thumping admirals and generals um, that yes, salute the flag, and that flag is yours. So, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I think, but yes, I think the problem is once you're dealing with certain areas of technology, there are so few people who have the actual knowledge and skills to do the work that oh, you sure, have to sure. you have to accept to an extent a certain thing of do we trust them and uh, do we trust uh, you know but, and it goes for as, as Greg, Greg mentioned earlier you know where are these Virginias going to come from even if they're second hand. Um, because the United States. Oh, it's a second hand. We know you're getting the bad steel batch. We just <laughs> know you're getting the bad steel batch. In fact, we'll have to call them the bad a steel anything, batch. Because you, have the, built... you have the scrap iron flotilla. You need the bad steel <laughs> batch. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Um, yes, anything built before 2017 is suspect. So, yeah. I mean, well, that, that's. In a, in a lot of ways, I think they kind of they missed the boat because it's been a while since they actually announced all of this. And you know the Orcus thing in the whole in the first place, and it was clearly in the works even before that because they had it mostly at least they had a paper they had papers to sign before, so they were in negotiations even before that. And as we've pointed out before, the UK the Barrow and Furnace subbuilding facility in the UK is going to be 
having a bit of extra capacity in the next few years as the astute the last astute goes into the water and at that point we're just building the four dreadnoughts until uh ssnr-ssn orcus comes along um I, and... I, thought, I thought there were, i thought your um, boomers were using the same slipways yeah but it, if you the if you actually look at the the total number of um hulls Modulus. that were under construction um at one point you had i I forget off the top of my head, but it's, it was either five or six hulls. It was six. Was was simultaneously under construction in Barrow, mm-hmm. um, and when obviously once the last astute goes down the slipway, then you've got the four dreadnoughts. But that theoretically leaves two hull spaces available um, in terms of what can physically fit. But of course, a lot of the long lead items like the reactors, etc., you know, some of the stuff we were mentioning earlier in context of other ships, all of that stuff is is pre-ordered before the keel is laid for a sub. Which is um, another small problem for the Virginia for going with a Virginia build, because if you mm-hmm. want to use those reactors, you're going to have to have ordered them about six months ago. Well, th- th- this is the thing. It's the the, uh, the reason I say they missed the boat is because unlike the US yards. British yard, the British yard would have capacity, kind of roughly from now going forward. If to probably build about three boat, uh, two to three if, boats. Yeah, if they thought about ordering these things two, three years ago, the problem is that now we're, we're two or three, three years down the line. The production runs for some of the stuff that they put into the astute, some of the big stuff, will have been done. You know, it, it's now a state, it's a case of. It, theoretically, we've got all the technology to build new astutes, but we'd effectively be reopening a production run with all the inherent startup costs inherent to that. It's, it would be quite as expensive as setting up from, from scratch in the first place, but it, there would still be a startup expense rather than just a continuation of production. Um, and that I think that is probably what's landed them with this slightly odd scenario of of going with virginia's which they're somehow going to magic up from somewhere um and then switching back over to a kind of british australian hybrid with us technology built in which is going to be really interesting to try and see them make it work but i think the one thing with a nuclear reactor powerful enough you have enough energy to pretty much uh, power anything even if you have to use freaking power converters um, I think the other issue that's going to come up with it, and I think this is the scenario which we're sort of we're being nice about, is that it, there is terrible timing going on here. But I do wonder if, in pragmatics, if it wouldn't have been better to have announced, to an extent, if you look at the SSNR design, right, it looks like a very, it looks like an evolved astute. And I wouldn't be surprised if at the moment the current designs are an evolved astute. And I'm almost be tempted to say that instead of waiting till 2030, it's almost a case of, you know, it, almost a case of Australia should have possibly said, right then, what we'd like is we'd like to take the first two of the SSNR program, we'd like them built alongside the Drenot program. And then we'll take the new reactors, which are being built for the, from you the see, dreadnought you, reactor. You're line. assuming you're assuming that Australia actually wants submarines, though. You see, <laughs> so I, I'm still thinking. Yeah, this I, is keeping the, 
I'm still thinking this is kicking the can down the road. Um, I agree, if, but the um, trouble is with nuclear. Otherwise, once yeah, you... there, there would be there'd be ink on paper if they were serious. And, and look, you know, the day after the AUKUS announcement, you know, the US Admiral stands up and says, you know, um, we're building 1.2 nuclear attack submarines each year in order to reach the US Navy's stated goals of nuclear attack submarines by 2030. We're going to have to be building them at a rate of something like 2.2 per year, which means that anything we build over and above 2.2, Australia can have. Well, that's a long way, a lot of uh, um, expanded capacity needed, isn't it, before they can even have enough spare new uh, um, Virginias to, to, to spare um, a few old ones to, uh, to, to send our way. So, I mean, yeah, that might be why Australia's giving um, the US apparently bucket loads of money to help upgrade its uh, production slipways, not so much to build us new boats, but so that they can build themselves new boats so that they can sling a few old ones out our way for, to, for us to practice on. Um, but then you'd think, well, why not just sling the money towards the UK to, you know, as you say, speed up the production of the, um, of the next generation um, SSN well, AUKUS. So a lot of the interesting again, things... it seems to me it's it, it, this is why I'm the cynic in me is coming out, and I'm thinking, well, if everyone's a winner in this process, then clearly nothing's ever going to actually happen. Agreed with that one, but uh, what I would say is that Barrow is being expanded. This is the only one of the other interesting things going on because there are various. Facilities at Barrow actually being added on and expanded, and the site itself looks like it's going to go through a little bit of an expansion as well. With you know, there's some articles and one I put in the uh, Twitter uh, in the uh, in the uh, Twitter uh, chat of the from Save the Royal Navy, uh, Pete Simon's uh, thing. And well, I think it's now called Navy Lookout. I think he's rebranded, but it is. Kind of interesting that Barrow is actually being expanded, that Britain is actually expanding the capacity. What's also interesting is when they start talking about the numbers of submarines, it's the first time in years the British government has not only talked about expanding, well, in terms of the purchase for Australia, but they're turning about talking about matching it. They're talking about the need to expand the submarine fleet. And that's really kind of strange. Because British governments haven't, for the last 30 years, talked about expanding the submarine fleet. They've oh, always they're... talked about the more advanced expanding submarines requiring something. less. Mm. And it's, I suppose. It's, it, it, it's kind of... Would you trust your government to reduce oh, a plan that they would stick to over the course of the next 20 years? There are probably Direct. two different governments involved. <laughs> At least... The only way to get the uh, the British political establishment to do, actually do something over the course of more than two or three years would be to actually sign it into some kind of law with an inbuilt, very difficult to reach majority for getting rid of it. You know, if you, you I mean, and it, to be fair, it has been done in the past a few times. Um. But, you know, you, you'd have to pass a law, literally a, an act of parliament saying this is what we're going to do. Um, and 
your the any gov any subsequent government is now bound by law to do it and the only way to revoke it would be with a special you know two uh, like a two-thirds vote in parliament to revoke the law to allow them to then revoke we, the we need to do the same thing here uh you the trouble is in the uk technically you cannot parliaments cannot bind the hands of future parliaments technically well that's not binding their hands it's just requiring a majority isn't it yeah, well, I mean, it's it's the same thing with our what ten, fifteen year dalliance with um, fixed term parliaments. There was the fixed term parliaments act that technically binds the hand of parliament. They've since <laughs> suspended parts of it and gotten rid of it, but it lasted for a little bit. It just has to last long enough. Um, you just have to set the threshold and the consequences um, to be high enough for people to to blink about potentially um you know going back on their word yes uh, anyway mm. so enough about AUKUS like I say um I remain no less skeptical than I did 18 months ago and the only thing that will um start to lift that skepticism is signed contracts and uh, mm. we're still not seeing uh, a hint yet of those actually being in the works i am hearing you know that uh, there are um talks and uh, underway but just talks about starting to you know send exchange engineers and the likes with the production facilities in the us and the uk and start uh, working with um the us and uk to work to towards at least planning ways to generate the Australian workforce, but even that's still just talk at this point. At least they're talking about it because um, that is the one thing you need to do before you can do anything else is actually get someone who knows what red button not to press. It's it's going to be interesting. And in the meantime, what else is happening in the world? Well, the matter of all, um I'm kind of noticing something. It seems to me that many of the nations which seem to most um, protest their innocence are doing a very good method of recruiting for the things which they say are attacking them. Uh, but leaving that to one side, Finland. Finland has joined NATO, or is, is just about to join and join NATO. Turkey's agreed to accession. And I thought it was kind of interesting looking at the Finnish Navy and thinking, what capabilities do they bring to NATO that NATO hasn't had? And they actually do bring a lot. The Finnish Navy is a pretty interesting force. Well, I have to confess I, that um, I, I don't tend to think Navy when I think Finland. Well, it's but maybe that's because I'm way down here. Maybe that's because I'm way down on the Southern Hemisphere and uh, don't bump into them very often. Well, their current force is built around Hamina class a fast attack craft and Roma class attack craft. And if you look them up, they are pretty darn interesting vessels. They've also got their own mine layers and um, various other things going along. But what is the thing is for the Baltic, these are going to add some pretty interesting capabilities into NATO. And of course, Due to Finland's traditional, how do I put this politely, um, independence and neutrality, because traditionally they have been neutral and they have been trying to throw, 
they have developed quite a lot of interesting technology themselves. Which means it's going to be interesting watching that technology get, how do I put this, integrated into the wider NATO forces and how, what effect it might have on them. And that's one of the reasons I'm looking at, sort of, because if we consider the uh, Hamina class, honestly, 57 millimeter dual po uh, Bofors, um, they're being modernized though currently, and they're replacing a 57 millimeter with a 40 millimeter. Just doing that. Um, but, it's, but they don't. It's not like those aren't available. Mm -hmm. Those aren't. Well, I, I think part of the um, part of the rather interesting um, element to to all of this is perhaps less to do with individual ships' capabilities, although obviously having additional ships is a good idea. Um, but you've also got to recognize that if Sweden and Finland are going to be joining NATO, then they may also look at changing the makeup of their fleet, because if they've previously been looking purely at what can we afford on our own for home defense, um, that's a slightly different beast to what is the best, what is the best way of constructing our Navy such that it integrates with the rest of NATO. Um, but what NATO has historically lacked in the Baltic is exactly what Sweden and Finland are bringing, which is extensive experience operating in the very shallow, very congested waters of the Northern Baltic, because, you know, up and until Finland. the end of the, the uh, up until the end of the Cold War, apart from you know, Denmark, that's was basically the only people with any direct access to the Baltic. Then once you had German reunification, you then and now obviously with and Poland joining, etc. You now have got the southern Baltic coast covered, but the southern Baltic environment is a rather different beast to the northern Baltic environment. And Sweden and Finland are a heck of a lot closer to the Russian coast. And with the best will in the world to the Polish and German navies, they have a lot more reason to be deeply invested in exactly how you run around the Baltic um, and you know dodge Russian subs and so forth. So I think more than anything it's a combination of the expertise that they bring that they can now fully share with their al their new allies and the fact that nato vessels of whatever way shape or form might happen to be based there once this theoretically all goes through you know they're going to be able to not just have that knowledge imparted to them also learn themselves um, by being based in Stockholm or Helsinki or wherever else, you know, get up close and personal rather than having to transit in from the North Sea and make their way up. Would you want them to change their force structure though? Because um, you know, they're now the front line of NATO when it's against the uh, mm. belligerent that is um, Russia um, and that strategic gap is still still needs to be filled that that those that, that force um tailoring is, is ideal um for you know what it needs to do it does does it need to become another germany or poland or I should germany or poland to... become another finland it's well that's it's, interesting uh... i wouldn't say they necessarily need to change their structure but i would say i'd be very interested in things like that and i am going to absolutely <laughs> terribly pronounce this so please uh, i apologize to all my all our finnish listeners straight up uh, the ponchum uh the posh the 
Pochan Ma class, um, which is literally spelled P O H J A N M A R R. No, M M A. Um, so P O H J A N M A A class Corvette, the 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 Ma. Um, they're building four of these new Corvettes, and they're really quite cool vessels. But honestly, I, I look at them and I go, I think the German Navy needs to go and um, ask them to redesign uh, to get uh, to buy their Corvettes rather than the ones they're building because um, this thing carries the both of thousand ton frigates. Uh, it carries the eight Gabriel five uh, surface to surface missiles. It carries um, thirty two Sea Sparrows in eight Mark forty one VLS systems. Uh, it carries mines. Saab Torpedo 47 um, ASW Torpedoes and track Saab Track Fire Remote Control Weapon Stations and has a helicopter and hangar. And um, by the way, you get all that on about 3,900 tons in a vessel which has a 5-meter draft, 60-meter beam, 140 meters length, and is designed operating in the Baltic very, very well. And you look at the sort of some of the other little corvettes which are supposedly of about the same size being built and being built by other nations for operating in the baltic you're sitting going um perhaps you all want to have a quick chat the finish about borrowing their design teams because they seem to have packed an awful lot into the hole the only thing i can think of is the obvious trade-off there is that surely they have absolutely minimal endurance three and a half thousand even, multiple miles where whereas even something like you know Denmark would need something, you know, with a, a, a bit somewhat longer legs. Well, I would agree for Denmark and sort of when we saw we're looking at sort of Denmark. But if you consider both, Germany maintains a sort of corvette force as well as a frigate force, and the corvette force is the Baltic fleet, and the frigates are the rest of the world. Okay, you can sort of there sort of see so. And if you look at their sort of so that when you're looking at their corvettes. You sort of be looking at them and going comparing it to them and like for like in that sort of scenario. That's what I I'd be carrying it to comparing it to Baltic combatants. So I'd say for a Baltic combatant, the range of three and a half thousand nautical miles and a top speed of twenty-six knots and a complement of only seventy and a very extensive um sensor range is a pretty darn useful hull. As Drax says again though, um the Southern Baltic is vastly different to the Northern Baltic. Are there considerations there that would um, shape your your hand when it comes to um, a vessel's design? You know, well, I think it's interesting the Finnish don't have submarines. Well, in really, in really shallow water, um, are they even useful? Well, that's the inter that's the point. Basically, I think they've decided. I, I think they decided that it just wasn't useful in the water. But the their surface ships do have an extensive anti-submarine warfare capability. You know, they do have. Again, if I'm using the the example of the class which they're building, which are the the Pond the Pond Jean Ma, um, they are attacking both a uh, dual low Patricia sonar D DTS sonar, a Konsberg hull mounted sonar, um, SS twenty thirty, and a Konsberg SD nine fifty and nine five hundred sonar. So is that for mine warfare or for anti-submarine warfare? It'll do all three. That and Sona Fit Max. And especially in waters like that. So it seems to me 
the only thing I have, uh, only thing I sort of worry about is they they built basically four hulls, and but that shows you as the thing I always I'm always telling people when I'm when I'm asked about the number of hulls and what that tells you about a nation. If they're building one, it's basically a white elephant because it's only cable when it's available. Two is a sort of capability, but again, it's a limited capability. Three is an availability, i.e. that capability will be available. Four is a guaranteed capability. So if they're building four, they want to have guaranteed have at least one of those vessels available at any one time. And that's what it, it tells you. Now, I'm again, this is the thing. You, looking at how good they are and look, having talked with people about Corvettes for... Um, for the Baltic, and some people even looked at the LCS as maybe an idea for the Baltic. I'd be much prefer them to be uh, to be building and getting some more of these vessels for their sort of the Baltic operations, because again, it's kind of like the Danish Navy. You know, you know, we sort of say that you know there are three navies which I would say are quiet achievers. Four, possibly if you can do the Singaporeans. In that people do not take that much notice of them, but they quietly are producing very good hulls capable of doing exactly what they need to do. And in that scenario, you need to start looking at them constantly and go, what are you and why are you doing it? Because you really know what you're doing. The vessels that the Finnish are producing, you must remember they always maintain more than four. Usually they have at least two classes of their corvettes in, in, in service at any one point, usually with four boats, or four hulls in each class. So they usually have eight hulls in total available. They, when you look at sort of what they're doing, they are very, very clear about what they need to do and what they don't need to do. And they're very good at that. And it's, again, if I quickly, because someone will most likely come and go, what are the four navies? I go, I'd say Singaporean could probably be the fourth, but the other three are Denmark, Italy, and Finland. Because if you look at them, Italy is as a very surprisingly capable navy, considering how people sort of traditionally, when they're looking at modern navies, they're mm. talking about they're talking about the British, the French, the American, the this, the, that. The, the Italian is very, very capable. The the, the Danish, we don't need to say any more about this channel. We basically all have a love in affair. I think it's not just because they send us three packs of bacon. Um, that bacon doesn't <laughs> buy them this much what? love. <laughs> hasn't got down here yet hasn't got down here yet uh, and it's a scenario where we're sort of talking sort of the Finnish are the, are the third one because the Finnish Navy it would be very easy for them to have gone oh we should build submarines because everyone else is building submarines but no they looked at it and went no submarines don't work in our waters and if you consider that, think uh, think about that from a uh, with considering the uh, discussion we already had about Australia, about Britain, about America with AUKUS with all the nuclear submarines. For a nation to turn around and go, actually, no, submarines don't make sense for us. That takes a lot of effort. That not so, they're not saying they couldn't yeah. afford submarines because trust me, the amount of money they're spending on their navy, they could afford submarines if they wanted them. The Finnish but, are not. Yeah, they, they, spending... do, they do have a very specific geographical circumstance, yes. which is vastly different to. But um, it's still well, Australia, it's... the United States, Great Britain. Italy. Yes, but <laughs> but those nations um, all needs. The thing I'm saying is, if you're already spending 1.3 billion euros on procuring four surface vessels, 
and that's the baseline expenditure on those four well, vessels. If you're spending one, <laughs> you are not. You are not. You are quite happy to spend a lot of money if you want to on the fence. So, in nice way, you could spend the money and buy some submarines if you wanted to, if you thought they were worthwhile. But you said no. And the what's, thing what's is, the conversion? You consider euros what's the conversion to... of a euro to Australian dollars. I'm just wondering how many, how many of those um, uh, Corvettes we can buy for 360 billion Australian instead of the um, these eight. Okay, uh, one euro equals 1.6 Australian dollars, so 1.3 billion. <laughs> uh, dollars to the pound. <laughs> uh, you are talking about um, 2.07 billion, well, 2.08 billion almost, um, Canadian dollars, Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, In current conversions, so we can buy several hundred of them. Yeah, we you could buy a few of them. Uh, well, not not say not say you could you you could certainly for how many billion are you spending in? Three hundred sixty. Uh, you could buy eight times roughly one hundred and eighty, because you probably get a bulk order. So we're, we're probably <laughs> talking eight hundred plus eight times eighty. Uh, that's 640 so that's 1440 <laughs> yeah so this is this is the thing you know <laughs> as soon as you start applying that amount of money on other weapon systems you suddenly start to realize is it really the best bang for buck to put it crudely um i just, think just the trouble how, is just imagine how many high mars systems you could buy for 360 billion dollars australia but the high mars and can't do the same thing a submarine can well, but but you know, if you're talking about defending, well, why not? Why can't you just park your high Mars truck on on your your, your row row carrier? Because I mean, you've got enough of them. <laughs> yeah. I I I know where you're coming from, but I think part of the trouble for Australia with its expense, and this is what adds value, adds cost to everything, is the fact that Australia is not just having to build the infrastructure to maintain this vessel, yeah. etc. They are having to build everything from scratch to support these, and that's going to make any project more expensive. This was the trouble also with modern SSKs. The trouble is, Australia, you, successive governments have just not invested in the infrastructure. And the thing is, me and Drak can critique British infrastructure all we, uh, non-stop, and we do quite happily. But we have one advantage in that we have kept nuclear submarines going. We have kept investing in that infrastructure. Even the yeah. Queen Elizabeth class, they built new frigging docks them for them. You haven't managed to scrap any of them yet. <laughs> no, that 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 was the... Well, I mean, if you've ever been to Rosite, there's a sucking great hole next to, uh, next to the main dockyard, which was supposed to be a submarine base. <laughs> um, and it's just a very expensive hole um in the ground right next to a river which i'm not sure is entirely the most sensible thing to leave but there you go and yes mm -hmm. yeah we do we don't we we keep building nuclear submarines we have no idea what to do with them once they're done um, no they're all certainly sitting in plymouth well yeah well plymouth and half half plymouth half rosside i still think the um <clears throat> the the idea of what the french did with redoutable is quite a good one just cut out the section of the hole with a reactor in it turn it into a, a museum and replace the reactor compartment with a giant cafe dash restaurant Radioactive. that is very good i mean we, we, we've got a housing crisis so um you know 
We've well, got enough nuclear subs. We can probably make a dent in the number of people who need accommodation. It's, you know, we can just turn the reactor spaces into the recreation room. Um, and well, yes, okay, then the we have a bunch of reactors. And then we could see what will happen. Well, we've got a bunch of reactors that would theoretically then need to be disposed of, but we could store a bunch of reactors next to each other in a much smaller space than we can store in entire flotillas of submarines. Yep. And before anyone says storing, like, what, two dozen, three dozen nuclear reactors in one area would make, us a, make, would make it a prime target, with the UK, if it goes nuclear, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> there isn't really anywhere in the UK which isn't... I have had this conversation with my family because they keep wanting to... Uh, they, they keep talking every time there's a scare from Putin of moving, and I go, where are you moving to in the UK? <laughs> and they don't like me then they don't like me they, it, 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 it's considered not nice um but well, i would still target practice i mean you know the brazil with its uh, carrier um but surely that sets a precedent okay it wasn't brazil... nuclear. <laughs> yeah. yeah they they cut was it was it the egg fox they set it loose cut it loose and uh sank it to be fair, the British find... do have a history of doing that to get rid of ships. They, could, they couldn't find a um, uh, a place to dump it because it was full of asbestos. So, you know, asbestos radiation, what's the difference? Hmm. Well, we could put it down there with like the three million metric tons of poison gas and explosive we chucked into the Irish <laughs> Sea. I'm sure Actually, that... Could... Look, even better... There's a, there's a wreck not far from where you guys live. Maybe you can just dump them there. Yeah, but that's only four kilotons. <laughs> There's four kilotons and then there's three megatons. And the yeah, other thing is the yeah. one near us is World War II explosives. The one in the Irish Sea is at least 20 years older. It'll be much less stable. World War One. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, that that's just, oh, good Lord. Don't Congratulations. Would you like a gigantic explosion with a side dose of radiation and mustard gas? And hey, radioactive mustard gas? Hey, hey. Hate <laughs> and poisonous <fun>. radiation. <laughs> it's fun every time someone suggests let's build a railway tunnel or bridge over that position. <laughs> and they say that you know the usual phrase say that as well. Well, it's, it won't be in, it won't be interrupting any fishing grounds because there's no there's no fishing going on there. And I go, if it is dangerous enough that even the fishermen are going, we don't want to cast our nets in this area. That tells you everything you need to know. Do you really want to tunnel through it with a large boring machine? <sighs> okay, so point is, is that yes, we're we're already having this debate in Australia as to where to put the reactors because if we get secondhand Virginias, we're going to have to start getting rid of them apparently because um, once we once we get delivery, we won't be able to hand them back. And if we've got uh, secondhand Virginias, we want to get rid of them pretty quickly once we start taking delivery of our brand spanking new British whatchamacallits. And that means we'll have to start assembling well, um, them here. I, I think the likely thing is it's basically going to... This, the reactor modules are going to be built in the UK, and I think it's either going to be... There's a debate as to... Uh, the British government have said they what uh, now said, retracted the Defence Minister's statement where he said that what the first Australian one is not going to be built in the UK. But to my mind, building something like a nuclear submarine, they're either going to be having heavily involved in watching the British submarines get built, or the first one is going to have to be built in the UK with a lot of us with the Australians basically building it in the UK and a huge number of British workers watching the Australians build it in the UK, which would be <laughs> kind of inefficient. But to make sure it's built, pro they know they're, they're happy and comfortable with what they're doing because. 
the mo the worst thing you can do, and thank Lord Welders and their confidence never seems to die, so they'll be okay as long as they've got their pearl snaps. Um, the the worst thing they can sort of do is not have confidence when you're doing a weld on a nuclear submarine, because that will mean you'll automatically muck it up. Um, yeah, that, that that's sort of one of the scenarios coming from me, but I. Let's add on, because it's not just a nuclear submarine program for Australia, which is the interesting thing going on. We've also got South Korea, which is increasingly talking about procuring. The carrier they're procuring keeps growing in size. And more importantly, um, Korea and Japan decided to start talking to each other again this week. Yes. Um, admittedly, I can fully sympathise with Korea's position when it comes to um, Japan's lack of... Um, uh, What's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Remorse <laughs> for its behaviour during the occupation of the first uh, half of the last century. Um, but I guess, you know, um, when it comes to current geopolitics, it's not really a great time to, um, you know, stick by such a unfortunate piece of history. Well, it, it's the, the kind of scenario, it's kind of like Finland and Sweden, who have traditionally been incredibly neutral, suddenly joining NATO. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, it's a case of for those countries. It's the fact, the interesting thing is that I was having a chat with a, a gentleman who comes from a country which is famously neutral in the centre of Europe. And his exact phraseology to me was, if we had the neighbour they did, we would also be having to con uh, uh, to uh, having to very carefully re-examine our neutrality. And it's something when you hear that coming from a someone who is very ardently neutral, and they're very ardent proud of the nation, but is also going, look, this uh, that's the scenario going on, and you've now got, of course, South Korea and Japan going. Yeah, we have huge problems with each other, but um, we have even more problems with that person over there, so we're actually going to need to talk. Yeah, it's make, the make kind of conversation for... where both sides are um, really searching for... You can imagine... When so when the somebody is searching for the political speech, because they always have these political speeches other things where they talk about historic friendship between nations. You can just imagine the joy of the speechwriters in going, We have to research for historic friendship between Japan and <laughs> Korea for this meeting. I, I I my only hope is that they actually halve the work and they let the poor speechwriting teams actually work together. I think what will happen is they'll just, they'll just stay silent and let um, the United States, who are the main beneficiaries of this, because now they'll actually be able to talk to both of them at the same time, instead of having to talk to them each separately, they can do all the wonderful speech, speech writing, and um, South Korea and uh, Japan can nod their heads. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually in that nodding dog scenario, if either Britain or America gets brought along to help out with that scenario. Uh, well, no, I mean, Britain or Australia, sorry. Uh, if you consider mm. some of the agreements which have gone on, including the British recent uh, uh, treaties with Japan and the stuff which has been negotiated with South Korea, apparently, 
And if you consider the Five Eyes and AUKUS agreements, I wouldn't be surprised if America, to make things even less of a, this is a Japan-Korea thing, uh, with America as middle, uh, sort of go, well, let's add in Britain and Australia and, uh, you know, make it even more uh, multilateral so there's less pressure on the... Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's certainly heading that way, and I think that the diplomats are certainly hoping that is the case. Um, we'll see how it goes. It's, you know, it's I, certainly, I... The, 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 I guess the dominoes are falling, aren't they? We've got the Philippines um, now not only allowing more um, basing of um, US forces, but they're also calling out Chinese actions in the um, contested Spratleys and uh, so forth islands in a way that they wouldn't do before because of fearing to upset their neighbour by uh, telling the world what's going on in their own backyard. But um, now they're you know, regularly firing off diplomatic protests and um, transmitting you know, video and photo footage of what the hell these um, Chinese fishing militia and Coast Guard are up to. The old, it, um, it's a very similar tactic to what they used against Russia, I suppose, isn't it? The, um, I think the interesting, the, intelligence. Thing, the interesting thing is going to be New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because yeah, they've got I, a very, you, yeah. very, very long-standing, very entrenched, and all the more so thanks to the French um, attitude when it comes to you know uh, military um, basing and, uh, in particular, nuclear. Um, uh, power and nuclear weapons. Well, I, I, I can uh, understand all that, but it's also a case of New Zealand had been trying to walk the very fine line between America and China. Mm. And, and Australia had been doing that, trying to do that as well. But, you know, that that attitude changed once we started getting, um, you know, the, the, the hard word put on us. Um, mm. And I guess, you know, New Zealand hasn't actually been in that position yet. So, you know, it's, it's, I can understand why they're a bit slower in some regards. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Let's, let's just say that, uh, you know, the thing about the thing with New Zealand is even after all these decades, Rainbow Warrior still is a deep scar. And, um, you know, the, they're going to be suspicious about any kind of um, you know, deal involving, well, A, the French, <laughs> but B, nuclear vessels of any kind. I can yeah. get that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how everything, how everything shakes out. But, I mean, the fact that I think that the main thing is is not to necessarily get bogged down so much in the details, but just the fact that you have, you know, Sweden and Finland sitting out the entirety of the Cold War as far as being in NATO is concerned. Now they want to be part of NATO. Um, you know, for, for better or worse, Australia spent the, the Cold War with conventional subs. Now they want nukes. Uh, Korea and Japan, you know, if there's any two countries in well if there's any country that's been m more of a target outside of ironically enough china for japanese occasional expansion than korea has 
<laughs> you know that then the it takes a it takes a fair bit to get them talking especially considering there's still a lot of holdover um from various japanese political positions about what according to them did or didn't happen during the second world war and immediately before it so for them to overcome that and talk about corporation it all indicates that you know people are taking the wider elements of what could happen quite seriously and that kind of sitting on the fence which a lot of people have historically tried to do is gradually becoming a less and less tenable position and you have to end up picking a side the obviously the 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 slight um i wouldn't i would not concern the thing to watch out for i would say is that as you have fewer and fewer countries sitting on that fence the hard borders between the the sides that don't really like each other get closer and closer together <laughs> and it's one yes. thing to have you know power block a who doesn't like power block b and country c sitting in between kind of being a bit of a buffer zone but once power block a and power block b share a hard border you tend to get escalation well, sooner or later and it's usually well smaller. south korea is already in that position you know that they have a mm. hard border but mm. you know we've already seen the whole backlash over the third missile system that really rattled um south korea and uh, mm. china did the whole economic kind of coercion thing and um, south korea backed down and as a result um China has been trying to ride roughshod over them ever since, thinking that all it takes is a bit of extra pressure and Korea, South Korea will back down. Well, now they've, I think they've decided that they've had enough of that mm. and uh, um, are stepping back up to the plate. And, you know, that means that the next deal, whatever it will be, will be treated like the third uh, situation, that China will up the ante very quickly and um, South Korea will have to dig its heels in. And I think it's going to be interesting because, again, with Finland joining NATO, the border between Russia and NATO has now expanded massively. Doubled. Doubled. Yeah. And Which is why Finland's always been such a determined little nation to, to do how to defend itself. Which is interesting, as you say, that it st still remained non-aligned, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but now it's decided that, frankly, no, the circumstances, it, it's worse now than in it's, the Cold is, War. No, is, is it because it thinks it's got a better chance against Russia now? Whereas previously it thought that if we align with NATO, it makes us a more of a target. Now it doesn't matter because Russia can't do anything about us. I wonder if it's more a case of, and the, I, I did have an interesting conversation with someone the other day, which was a case of, look, at the, and because I was talking about there was a gentleman who keeps his videos keep going around uh, Twitter uh, around Twitter and all sorts of YouTube where he's basically saying something along the lines of now NATO's really worried about fighting the Russians because we'll win so easily they'll have to go to nuclear weapons. And I was sort of going, well, yeah, I I, I talk with more of those people than you do, mate, and I ain't heard that one. But um, actually, there is a sort of train of logic where I can see where he's got that from, but they haven't used that kind of phraseology. And the thing is. For Finland, if they're looking at the performance of Ukraine versus Russia, that's been humiliating enough for Russia. Yes, we don't know what the result is going to be. We don't know what how the Russia, but it's been bad enough for Russia that they haven't been able to quickly stop Ukraine. 
when they've basically been talking about being able to do it constantly for the last 30 years. The thing is, Finland is far better armed and far better prepared than Ukraine is. And that would be a much bigger problem. So for Finland, their view is, well, hang on, we're that much closer to things like Moscow and they might really go nasty on us. And of course, the Finnish do have history. They have had the Russians go really nasty on them. So they might well be joining NATO because they think if we join NATO, then that makes Russia less likely to attack us because when we're a member of NATO, they know they're going to have to face all that lot. So it changes the calculation from them in thinking that they can stomp us because we're a small nation to thinking, yeah, but all that lot will come in behind them. So it actually yeah, makes fair. it less likely to happen. And I think I think that's sort of the calculation that Finland and Sweden are doing. I think that's the calculation they're on because they have both been not only neutrally aligned, but neutrally aligned and supporting each other. But of course, I think the longer term, more bigger issue is going to be what's going to happen after the fighting in Ukraine either is over or peters out. Because... I can see very clearly a future where Ukraine joins NATO. If there's enough of a ceasefire, demarcation, whatever it may be in the end, that sends the war. Turkey to agree with that. I have a fear. Well, I have a feeling that Turkey's currently ha- Turkey had enough issues over Sweden and Finland joining, and Turkey's been persuaded that life would be better if they just let them do it. And I have a feeling with Hungary, regimes change, modus changes, NATO remains. By the time. <laughs> well, it all depends on whether Trump gets back, doesn't it? Um, I think even if he does get back, it's, this is going to sound strange, but the there is one weird thing that happened when he was in charge, and I would like to point this out. It did actually buy us a few years of peace. As I said before, Trump is not really a president I would advise for America as America's sake, but he is just crazy enough, just nutty enough, that usually the other nations uh, outside of America don't want to cause trouble when he's in charge because he might actually push the frigging button. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. If you consider... Yeah. Putin didn't no, do these no things when Trump was in charge. It, 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 it's it's the thing that people have gone, oh, that's because he controlled Trump. And I go, no, no, no. It's because Trump's just about nutty enough. Putin was actually worried he couldn't predict Trump. He feels he can predict the other people and tell what they're going to do. But no one really can, because Trump doesn't know himself, I swear, most of the time what he's going to do. No one else can predict what Trump's going to do. It's brilliant for world peace, terrible for America. <laughs> Well, until he actually does press the button. Yes. <laughs> All right. Oh. Well, that would be it for the bilge spewing mm-hmm. for this session. Mm-hmm. We shall sure. hopefully catch up with everyone in a couple of weeks where um, I will hopefully be over the jet lag and we will be into the wonderful month of April. That time of year already? Sheesh. Yeah. Time flies. Don't worry. And by then we'll be able to talk about what um, comes out of this um, Xi Putin visit. Mm-hmm. That'll be interesting. If it has any nautical implications, I suppose. It could be some and, very interesting exercises. And beyond that, we might even have more details on what the hell is happening with AUKUS. Mm-hmm. 
There's never always know. a possibility. There's always a possibility. Catch you later. Thank you very much, Aaron. See you later. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. <laughs>